Hi, I'm Leisha Nelson, and you are listening to the Nurturing Resilience Podcast, where I weave together the worlds of somatics, science, and energetics to nurture a deeper connection to yourself. This is a podcast that covers a span of topics and ideas from guests storytelling rites of passage that catalyzed their resiliency, to nervous system and mind-body health education, to deep contemplation on topics such as cultivating connection to ourselves and others in a complex world. I can't wait to dive in to each episode with you. Thank you so much for joining me. Hello and welcome to today's episode. I am your host, Leisha Nelson, and you are listening to the Nurturing Resilience Podcast. This is episode two of a short series I'm doing on so-called taboo topics. And today I'm really excited to introduce my guest, Alyssa Pressman. Before we dive into today's podcast, I do want to share that a listener reached out to me and shared something around taboo topics and the history of the word taboo. She reached out to me and basically said, every time I heard you say that word taboo, I felt viscerally sad in my body. Taboo is actually an English derivative of the Samoan word tapu. And in Samoan, tapu, and I hope I'm saying that correctly, means sacred, holy, sanctified, and pertaining to the gods. Basically, taboo, the English made taboo mean prohibited, which is really meant to mean tapu, or the sacred culture practices and ancient wisdom are prohibited. So just to add, if you haven't listened to last week's episode where we dive into plant medicine, where we're talking with Caroline, go listen to that episode if you haven't heard it. It's a reiteration that the things that we might want to talk about in today's culture are prohibited. But really, if we look at the root word of the Samoan word, tapu, these things are actually very sacred. They are cultural practices that have a lot of ancient wisdom that have become prohibited in today's culture. So one, I want to bring awareness to culture appropriation and how many English words, maybe all of them, if I can say that, at the root have a deeper meaning that go back to many of the indigenous cultures and that these words are probably very different for these indigenous cultures in the way that we use them today. And I also want to name that that is why I'm doing this little series on, on my podcast is I want to bring awareness to certain topics that might not normally be talked about, that might not normally be quote unquote okay which is the exact reason why I invited Alyssa on my podcast today. We have so much fun in today's episode, and we're talking about some really intense things. We talk about death, we talk about chronic illness, we talk about self-extraction, we talk about quality of life, we talk about sexual trauma, we talk about purity culture, 
I mean, we really kind of talked about all the things you're not supposed to talk about, but that's why I love Alyssa is that she does that. She brings a voice to all of the things we're quote unquote not supposed to talk about and normalizes it. She normalizes it among her friends, her family, on her social media platforms, and she just lives so true and authentic to those things. And she really had to learn that in her own right through working through a chronic illness, many chronic illnesses that started in college, which is very young for most people to have to address chronic illness and quality of life. So it was really through that process that Alyssa had to learn how to speak about these things. And that probably is what propelled Alyssa to now work with grief. So I didn't even mention we go (laughs) into grief, but she works uh, as a coach and she's a licensed therapist working with grief, grief groups. So Alyssa really had to come to a space in her life and and a way of being that these topics aren't actually taboo. So just a little warning, today's content, we do talk about some really difficult subjects. So there's your warning. And also, I encourage you to take a listen and just see, see how almost fun it can be if you're in the right situation and talking to the right person around these more heavy-hearted topics. I also will name that there's twice in the podcast where the Zoom recording glitched. I did my best to edit what was happening, but there are two places in the podcast where one or two words is missing, but I think you'll get the gist of really what we're saying and what we're talking about. I wanted to call this podcast Two Girls Shooting the Shit (laughs) because that is kind of in a sense what this was. This is so much of a conversation. This is so much of like two friends sitting down and having a heartfelt conversation around tenderhearted and hard things. And it was great. It was fun. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I will link in the show notes as always how you can find Alyssa how you can work with her if you're interested in doing any one-on-one deeper work with her, especially around grief, sexual trauma, trauma resolution, relational work, which is really what Alyssa holds and dives into. She's a soul sister of mine and really talented coach and therapist. So definitely, if you have interest in working with her, please reach out to her. As always, if you are enjoying this podcast, please share this with a friend or family member, share it on your social media platform, pass it along. That is what gets me more listeners and more reviews. You might even want to leave a review yourself. Again, that is what propels this podcast, gets this information out there, and I highly, highly appreciate it so, so much. Also, if you're interested in deeper work with me, I'll also link on how you can find me in the show notes, basically through my website or Instagram. I'm hosting local gatherings here in Salt Lake City. If you live nearby, please check those out. And thank you so much for supporting this podcast, tuning into today's episode. And I really hope you have 
as much fun as Alyssa and I did. Welcome, Alyssa. I always love to start out sharing with my audience how I know you. Is that okay if I share our story? Yes, yes, please. Okay. So Alyssa and I met about six months ago. We signed up to work with Rachel Maddox, who is a somatic practitioner and coach to do her CEO business coven. And Alyssa and I both signed up. So we ended up in a coven together and we have been journeying deeply for the last six months. And I'm really sad that this coven has come to a close and hoping that sounds like we're going to continue our relationship in other ways, which I'm really excited about. Um, But I just immediately was attracted to you, your honesty, your authenticity, um, no bullshit. Like you are like, you get what you see, right? Like you just are. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And so I really asked you to come on this podcast one, not only just because I think you speak really well about a couple certain topics Mm. um, and two, just to show my audience, like, this is what authenticity looks and feels like. And it, and it's, and vulnerability and openness. And this is why we do the deep work that we do so that we can show up in the world this way. Yes. Yes. So I'll just have you start out with, um, who are you? Like, what do you want to share about yourself? And then we'll dive into some questions. Yeah, that sounds good. Hi, my name is Alyssa Pressman. I am a licensed therapist. I'm also a certified coach. And for work, I really support people in essentially all things relational. So I really like to kind of categorize it as relationship to self, relationship to your own life and relationship to the people that are important to you. Um, And I, I work with uh, people one-on-one and I actually have my own small group coven um, that I'm doing too now. Um, So small group support, one-on-one support. And I also do grief work as well. And that's been a big part of my work um, for years too. And just as a human, I live currently in Houston, Texas. My husband's in medical residency. So we're from North Carolina and we moved here right at the pretty early on in the pandemic. And so I've just been navigating what is it like to build a life with somebody? I went full-time entrepreneur at that point too. Um, just a lot of like big life living things lately for me. Yeah. That's yeah. a big transition. Yeah. <laughs> In a yeah. Wild oh, yeah. Time. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was like, you know, it would be a good idea. Us moving halfway across the country during a pandemic, you starting residency. I'm going to leave my job and start entrepreneurship. We're just going to like buy a house. Like we went, we went from zero to 100 very quickly. <laughs> That's so wild. Yeah. So you are a social worker, correct? Or that's yeah. what your licensure is under yes. social work. Yep. And you, it sounds like you worked in a really busy practice. You were seeing clients and stopped doing that. And I would love to know a little bit, why did you stop doing that? What was your experience? What was that transition like? Yes. I would love to talk about that. So my second year of grad school, um, I was looking for an internship that was more clinical in nature. And I came across this nonprofit agency that did grief work. And at first I had the reaction to grief 
like something like that, that a lot of people have, which is like, I remember literally seeing it. Cause it was like this thing that we got to look through of like all the different um, positions you could kind of apply for, for an internship. And I went, Ooh, like, Ooh, okay. Not that one. And something about it kept pulling me back. And I was like, I've never seen agencies doing work like this. A lot of times when we look at grief support and grief work, it's like religiously affiliated. It's through like a church or a temple, And so I just kept kind of looking at it and I applied and I went and interviewed and immediately was taken by the sacredness of the space, the facilitators, um, the physical space. Like you could just feel that it was like, okay, there's a lot of beautiful work that happens here. Um, And I knew I was going to be under great mentorship. So I was there for several years. I worked there full time once I graduated. Um, I had incredible mentors. I worked with wonderful people. I worked with kids and teens for a time. And then I really spent majority of my time was with adults who experienced the loss of a child. So anywhere from pregnancy loss through, I had clients in their seventies and eighties who had children in their, you know, fifties who die because once you're a parent, you're always a parent. And I did individual sessions, couples sessions, groups, like groups in schools. Like I was kind of running the whole spectrum of space holding for people. And I loved it. I loved it so much. And also it was, I, I became extremely burnt out and I didn't even realize it because I hadn't learned at that point in time. How do I not take this home? Like I was thinking about my clients and their stories and their lives constantly. And I didn't know, you know, part of that I think is like the youth I was in my mid twenties doing that work and I didn't know how to like separate and take care of myself at that point. Self-care was like a getting in the bathtub, (laughs) you know, getting a pedicure. And it's like, that's not going to do it when you are, you know, supporting people with deeply traumatic, very human experiences of death and grief, but like lots of trauma. Uh, The work I did, it was a lot of traumatic loss. And so I loved it very much. And Um, I decided to transition out of it because I knew that I was moving out of state with my husband, like how, you know, match day and residency works. You kind of, you go where they send you. And so once I knew that we were going to be out of the city and out of the state, I was like, okay, well, at that point, lots of people weren't even doing virtual because the pandemic hadn't hit yet. Mm. And I was getting married and I was like, you know, I need some time away from this before we move. And I literally, my last day was the last day of February. And within two weeks, everything went virtual. The pandemic was like full on hitting. And I remember honestly feeling kind of relieved thinking, I can't imagine doing that work on top of the pandemic. Like right, we were already incredibly busy. And I was like, I can't, I can't imagine. And it took me several months to realize I was actually deeply burnt out from the work that it had nothing to do with my clients or my coworkers or the job itself. I loved all of those things, but I had no idea how to handle the kinds of stories I was hearing and and people's experiences. And I brought everything with me everywhere. I carried it everywhere I went. And so it took me like a year to really recover from the level of burnout I had experienced in just a several years time. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for sharing. I, um, I think that's really common in our industry, like me coming from occupational therapy, you being social work, not recognizing the level of burnout that happens as care providers. And I remember years, years later, I was riding my mountain bike behind the hospital where I used to work. And I have a really strong sense of smell 
and I smelt the hospital smell, it hit me so hard. It knocked me off my bike. And I actually had to stop and have a little cry because Mm -hmm. the moment was so surreal of like all the emotion and all the memory of that time in the hospital and how much I gave and how burned out I was and just the dynamics that go into play that I think a lot of people on the outside don't understand what's happening with healthcare workers and how much we give and how burned out we get. Yep. They don't teach us in school, at least not for me, this like, how do you separate yourself from the trauma that you're going to see because we work in healthcare? Yeah. They really don't. And I did my, my whole research project in my second year of grad school was compassion fatigue and, you know, um, secondary traumatic stress. I don't know if it's even still called that anymore, but it was all of those things. And I was doing that, but I, I didn't know. Okay. So like, what do you do with it? Like, here's all the data and the evidence, but like, then what do you do with it? Um, is, is really like the follow-up question is like, how do you have longevity and work like that? What does that look like? Yeah. Well, and this actually brings up and we'll go back to your grief work. Cause I definitely want to dive into that more, mm-hmm. but in this moment, I'm really sitting with, this is actually, whether you're not in healthcare, like maybe just the pandemic, the pandemic alone has added such a stressor and what people are experiencing and my clients and my friends, like, what people have been experiencing the last two years isn't stopping. Like a lot of really intense stuff is happening to people right now, leading to lots of burnout, lots of grief, lots of trauma. And so even if you're not a care provider, it brings up the question of like, how do we separate ourselves, like our higher individual body self from the trauma or the thing that's happening around us? That's a big question to ask you. (laughs) That's a big question. I I mean, on one hand, I've got to be honest. I don't know. Like truly, I don't know. I mean, for me, it took incredible amount of time and distance to like like it was like things like I didn't realize I had this startle reflex that I had developed where I would be in a restaurant. And if I heard someone drop something, I would tense up, like it would startle me and I'd look around. No one had even heard it. Mm -hmm. And I realized it was like a result of, I was hearing so much death, so much trauma. Like I, I, it's like, once you know, all the ways that people can die, like stuff that I have was like, what, um, it it affected how I navigated the world. And for me, it literally took stepping back and taking a break from doing that work. I've recently re-engaged with, um, doing grief work again, but it took me some time and like really working for myself allowed me to say, okay, I can help people with these things, but I'm going to really limit how many sessions I'm doing a day, how many sessions I'm doing a week and and just not doing the volume of work that I was that, that for me has allowed me to have actual physical time and space where I'm not every day going and spending hours, just death and grief only. Um, I just couldn't do, I know some people can, and they're great at it and they have longevity. And for me, I can do grief work, but it has to, it can't be the way I was doing it. It's just not possible anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I really resonate with that. It's like, I can do body work. I can work with birth trauma. I can work with all these aspects, 
but it can't happen in the like, quote unquote, occupational therapy way, which is eight, nine, 10 clients a day, back to back five days a week, which is what, how I was trying to run my business wow. because I didn't know that there was another way that brings us to the nervous system and just understanding each of our capacities are really different and learning what that is, but we're met with this really intense capitalistic society. This is work, 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 do more, do yes. more, do more, do more, expand, expand. Yeah. Yeah. Self-extraction is the norm. Like it really is. It's like, you get what you, you know, you're in a workplace and there it's not even sometimes conscious or on purpose. Like we're going to use this person up, but it's just normal to say, basically, we're going to take as much as you've got. And I found myself doing that to myself. And even when I started building my business, I had to be really mindful of not replicating what I had been doing. It's like, cause then at what point am I just an asshole boss to myself? I'm like putting myself through this and I don't need to it's, it's so much to unwind from. Like, it's an incredible amount of unwinding from what's normal. And it, it makes you feel like you're doing something wrong. Like, oh, I can't handle this. And for me, one of the biggest, most sad things that I was wrestling with was my clients got the best of me, but I had nothing left for anybody else in my life, including me. Like I had no energy to go and have dinner with friends after work. Um, I spent the weekends recovering. I was irritable with, you know, my now husband, but at the time, like boyfriend and fiance, um, I didn't, it's like, he would call me to talk cause we were long distance. And I, I was like dissociating. I wasn't listening because I realized like, I can't listen to one more person say one more word to me tonight. I'm all used up. And it started to make me feel really sad because my clients do deserve the best of me, but so do the other people in my life. And I was just had no capacity. Work was getting all of it and I had nothing for anyone else. And I was like, I can't live like this. Like I wasn't, I wasn't giving in my relationships and I had, I was just empty. Yeah. Wow. I love how you said, like, I had nothing left outside of my work. Like I had nothing left for myself. I had nothing left for my relationships. And like, it just really creates this whole new level of disconnection outside of our work. Yeah. And all of our time is spent towards recovering. Yeah. So when you run into this with clients, like I run into this with clients, I actually spend a lot of my time navigating this with clients, um, is creating this balance because this extraction is happening. Yeah. Um, you know, and the self-care, you know, the self-care on Instagram is like, take a bath. Yep. Yep. <laughs> like that'll okay, do it. Nails done. Go on a vacation. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. well, okay. But that doesn't actually change anything. No. So what would your advice be to someone that is finding themselves in this depth of self-extraction? Yeah. What's the first step? How do they get out? Yeah. First step is having so much compassion for yourself. Like you don't know what you don't know. And if everybody around you is doing it and that's what's normal, then of course you're going to fall into that. And then when you're struggling, you're going to internalize it and think, well, what's wrong with me? Why can't I? But what people don't realize is that so many other people are struggling with the same things and no one's talking about it because no one wants to be seen as like, oh, they, they can't cut it. They don't got, they don't got what it takes for whatever job you're in. So to have a lot of compassion for yourself and to recognize that you're definitely not alone. This is a very normal thing. It's just hidden. 
now more people are talking about burnout, which I'm really glad to see. So lots of self-compassion. And my advice would be to slowly begin to look at the ways that you self-extract and to also notice like where you're being extracted from and it's not from you. It's systemic or it's from your job or it's from unhealthy relational dynamics in families or other friendships or work relationships. And to kind of like make note of that, whether you write a physical list or you just kind of start going, oh, and like, how does it make me feel? And if I could actually honor my capacity, what would that look like? What could I do less of? Um isn't this being called like quiet quitting where, where employees are doing like the bare minimum in their jobs, which I'm like, quiet quitting doesn't sound like the right name for that. No. And there's been a movement. I forget the name since the pandemic, like tons of people are quitting their jobs. Yes. I'm not surprised because in the world that I was working in along, you know, among social workers and therapists and clinicians, it was like, loneliness was already something people were struggling with. Like people are very disconnected in a world where there's so much availability for connection with technology. And then we were hit with the pandemic. And I immediately was like, oh my God, so many people are going to just hit the wall here. Like they're just going to hit their limit. And so when it comes to your job and your work, being mindful of like, when are you placing more expectations on top of yourself that you don't need to like, yes, people's jobs, some of them are very extractive, but then some people do a lot of the work for the, the job and they extract from themselves beyond what's actually needed because of this like perfectionism and I've got to do my best and I've got to give my all. And I would say, no, you don't. What would it look like to start scaling back? Like if you want to be realistic with yourself, where are you doing too much? And you really don't actually need to. Yeah. Yeah. And I, mm, so good. It makes me think of this exercise where you put yourself on a piece of paper and like a ring and you're in the middle and you draw a couple, like five or six rings and you're like, okay, who are the people that bring me the most joy and the most like love? And they're not extracting from me, like list the people in this ring. And these are the people that I get to spend my time with and be close with. And then you know, slowly working your way out to the outside ring and the outside ring goes the most extracting relationships. And this exercise can be so profound because there might be people in your life that end up on a ring or an area that you're like, oh my God, I'm hanging out with them all the time, Mm. but they're actually very extracting and very demanding and not healthy for my capacity or my system. Oh, I love that. And it, yes, it might be some of the people you're closest to that you're like, oh shit, you actually like drain me intensely. Like this is a very extractive relationship and no wonder I feel like I got nothing to give and I'm empty inside. That checks Mm -hmm. out. Right. And I'm at a job where I'm giving, giving, giving all day and then I have to come home or you know, on the weekends, I'm spending time with this person or I'm texting this person and all it is, is just extracting my energy. Yes. Which brings up this whole other concept. Well, if you don't like someone, just cut them out of your life. Like just yeah. this really hard, harsh boundary. And it's like, to me, that's not relational. No. I work very relational. I've studied the nervous system and attachment. I'm like, yeah, that's the other end of the spectrum just to be like, F you, you're done. Yes. Like that doesn't work either. (laughs) No, it really doesn't. I I really, I think too, we're deeply relational creatures. I think people deserve being given a chance to honor the boundaries that we set. 
with the exception of, you know, gaslighting, manipulation, abuse, narcissism, like things like that, where you're like emotionally or physically, mentally, spiritually, fiscally unsafe to be with those people, then you have every right to create as much distance as you possibly can or desire to have. Other than that, though, when people are very quick to cut people off or like, I'm like, at that point, then that is almost extractive of like, I've decided you're not for me, dump. Like that itself is like replicating systems of harm that we live and operate under. And I think people just deserve to be given a chance to have conversations and to to navigate confrontation and conflict and changing of boundaries. And I think people will surprise you. Yeah, I think so too. And again, that's, I mean, maybe it's just both because of our line of field and our area of work. Like I, I do work very relational and think about the bigger, think the bigger picture and the bigger scope. So yeah, me too. And I always think too, like, I want to be given a chance if I don't realize, like sometimes people don't realize what they're doing. They don't realize they're being extractive. They don't understand that that's what they're doing. If like, you're the person that people always call with their stuff and you're like, I don't have anything. It's like, give people the chance. Like I would want someone to say, you know, I feel like I hold a lot of space for you and I'm happy to do it when I can, but lately I haven't had capacity. Like, could you actually text me more frequently to check on me? I might, of course, feel like the normal human, like embarrassment of like, oh my God, I didn't realize I was doing that. I'm sorry. And then I would love the chance to honor that and and do what that person needs. I think about this with boundaries. Like a lot of the time, if I'm setting a boundary or if I'm, you know, if you're setting a boundary, anyone's setting a boundary, We've had some time to like come to that realization, come to that conclusion, make that decision. And so Mm -hmm. we set the boundary and we make it known for the other person. But the other person has no clue that in the background, we've been doing all this processing around this boundary and getting this whatever we need to come to this place. And so, you know, we set a boundary and the other person is most often like a little shocked or surprised but they haven't had the time. And so I often like to remind people, like when you're the one setting the boundary, give it space so that the other person can also have the time to process and to come into a place to meet you. Yes. To catch up with you a hundred percent. That to me is relational work. It's not you going, this is what it is do it now or leave, but letting people meet you in that space and giving them time. Exactly what you said is like, we have our whole internal dialogue going and are having our process and somebody else is having their own. They have no idea. So relational work means meeting together, having the conversation, relating to one another, and then seeing what can come of it Mm. together or Mm. apart if that's what needs to happen. Right. Like, and sometimes it is a part and and honoring that, but I love that definition of relational work. And in the beginning, you talked about, I do relational work with people, but relational work like also goes to yourself. Yeah. Your body. Yeah. Um, Where else do you feel like you navigate this relational work? I, I look at relational work, yes, to yourself, to your body. I look at it to your people, like the people that are close to you and, and who you have intimate, close relationships with. Relational work in the context of the work that you do, right? So like whether you're an entrepreneur or you have a job, like what is your relationship like to those spaces and relationship to your own life? I look at my life as a living, breathing entity, 
that exists like in relation to me and doing that has changed how I show up for my own life. And so I, I support my clients in understanding that too, of like your life, you have a relationship to your life and it's going to look different depending on what's going on with you. And you're going to have to navigate different things. There's going to be periods where it feels really good. Like, oh, our relationship to my life, if everything feels good, things are, then there's going to be times where it's hard and you're like, what is going on? And it's hard and you might want to turn away. So that's the big piece too, is like, what is my relationship like to my own life and being an active participant in my own life? What does that look like? How am I extracting myself unnecessarily? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And the extraction is, you know, it's almost like in direct correlation with the more I extract, the less I can participate fully. Yes. And and to what end? You know, that's really the question is like self-extraction is so unconscious and almost automatic. Like I, I do feel like I worked in schools for several years. I worked with sixth graders with middle schoolers and the way even that we expect them to show up to school, it, it's like indoctrinated into them of like working. And you see kids like these are children who have really long school days. And then if they do extracurriculars and they have homework, it's like, where do they get to exist in any of this? And I I look at that and I'm like, so by the time we reach adulthood, we're just in this like automatic self-extraction. We don't even think about it. We just do it. And that's where people are like, I feel like I'm working to live or I'm living to work. And, and like, how do I change this? Because where there's no time for me or any of my time off is just recovering from how exhausted and spent I am from my work. And at that point, then you're just, your life is just working and that's really hard. And there's a lot of privilege and things in this conversation too, that have to be named. And there's a lot of systemic issues. So I'm definitely not saying that anybody who struggles needs to just like work less, you know, (laughs) it's not possible. And I think that's important to name too, because that's very much a part of the conversation, Um, And that's not something that you can address on an individual level. There's not enough self-care in the world to do that. No, it's a broke, it's a broken system. And I'm, I'm happy that you named the privilege aspect because when I did quit my OT job, my partner was working full time and was able to support us while I transitioned. You know, I also made some really big sacrifices. Like I gave up my insurance and at this point in my life, I have shit insurance because of how my husband and I are choosing to live our life. It is coming at a cost that's going against the grain. Like we're not putting money towards retirement right now. And that gives my siblings and my family and my friends all giant heart attacks, you know, (laughs) because they're all working for systems and organizations that are giving them retirement. Yes. Yes. I have privilege and I'm making a very conscious choice right now to live my life very differently than most people in America. Yeah. And there's risk. Such a risk. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just not something that people talk about as much. And like one of the things I knew is I'm also a person that lives with chronic illness and chronic pain. So at some point I thought I would work for myself in some capacity. I came to that realization so that I could make my schedule to honor my body's capacity. Um, but I didn't know that I would do entrepreneurship like as a coach, the way that I'm doing it now. But I also had immense privilege. Like this is something that if I didn't have a partner who had a full-time job, I I mean, like, honestly, I would have moved back in with my parents, like seriously in my thirties and been like, okay, well, until I can make a feasible 
income, I'm going to be here for this chunk of time. And like, I have the ability to do that. And they would have, I think, welcomed me. Isn't an ideal situation? Like, no, but it would have been what I would have had to do. It would have been the sacrifice I would have made to like lose some autonomy, but it's also a privilege to have that kind of support too. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's my like, oh my God, the world's end. you know, those moments when the brain's spinning and I'm like the world's ending and I, and I'm, I'm doomed. And, and then I sit down and be like, okay, what's worst case scenario, worst case scenario, I move into my sister's basement. And if that's worst case scenario, like that's pretty lucky and amazing and privileged. Like, yeah that I have that ability. And that, like you said, she would welcome me with open arms. Would it be amazing? (laughs) No. (laughs) Would it be very humbling for my ego? Yes. Yes. (laughs) I'm with you. I'm so with you on that. Yeah. Oh yeah. You kind of brought up your chronic illness and chronic pain. I feel like let's, um, if you're open, kind of go into that a, a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Totally open to go into that. Yeah. So I would just love to know your story a little bit around as much as you want to share, of course. Yeah. Just around what that is, what that means, your experience with that. Yes. Yeah. So I was always very, um, like physically active. I grew up, uh, horseback riding and dancing, and then I got into a competitive dance studio and I was very busy and very active. I went off to college and at one, yeah, I was 20. All of a sudden I was having these like debilitating pain, painful episodes. And they felt like I'm going to get into the nitty gritty. They felt like UTIs on steroids. Like I'd had UTIs before in my life, but this was like, I mean, I was like, I feel like I'm dying. I went several times to the ER, was like hooked up to morphine and they couldn't figure out. They were like, there's no sign of infection. And I'm like, it feels like a UTI, but like 10 times worse. I don't know what's going on. And, um, I started going to all these different doctors and basically a lot of my pain was dismissed. I felt like I was losing my mind. Like I felt like something was wrong with me because I'm like, I'm in so much pain. I'm 20. So I'm looking around at uh, all of my friends in college. And I went to a university where it was like, work hard, play hard. It was like surrounded by very smart people. And yes, you excel academically. And then also you party a lot. And I was very big partier. And all of a sudden it was like overnight, I was like up all night in agony in pain, like uh, going to class on painkillers. Like it was so intense. Like sometimes I couldn't walk. I couldn't leave my bed. I couldn't get out of a bathtub. It was the only thing that brought me relief. And I remember thinking like, am I going to graduate? Like, am I going to be able to graduate? Am I going to be able to work? And I finally got in to see this doctor who's one of the best in the country. And he just happened to be in North Carolina, like an hour and a half from where I went to college. And I was diagnosed with interstitial cystitis. It's also has been known as painful bladder syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's essentially where like the lining covering my bladder is so damaged or goes away completely that it's like my bladder is like this open wound in my body. So anything I eat, anything I drink, there's no protective barrier. And of course, stress makes it worse. And I was a little ball of stress. I have been my whole life. It's something I've had to be really mindful of. And I, that thus began my treatment of like trying different medications and I was on painkillers. It was so intense. And one of the worst things you can do if you have that for everybody's body is different, but is drink alcohol. 
and I was big time alcohol drinker. And so I felt like my life was ending. I was like, oh my God, I'm in pain. Like I can barely make it to class. I can't drink like what? And it was, it was a dark few years. It took me about four years to be on the right mix of drugs. I had to change my entire lifestyle, how I ate. I got alcohol sober. Um, I had to change my stress, like everything, but it took me four to five years to figure out how to do that properly. Like it really did. And so it was intense. It was very intense. And then I was diagnosed several years ago, very informally with endometriosis. And so I was like, cool, that area of my body just like really struggles. And then when I was 25, I found out that I carry the BRCA1 genetic mutation passed down from my dad's side. So I had a preventative double mastectomy in 2017. Um, and I mon- I have stuff monitoring that because my risk of some other cancers, like ovarian cancer, is really high. So I am very familiar with the healthcare world. I have an array of specialists and doctors, and I blend like holistic care with Western medicine to just support myself as best as I can. Yeah. Wow. So <clears throat> during that time, I mean, I'm just reflecting back to in college and how I spent my college years. It definitely wasn't navigating pain or, you know, those different aspects of, of what you had to go through. Like, how do you think that kind of helped shape and change you if it did, or what are your takeaways from that time or, or now, because it's still a part of your life now. Yeah. Yeah. At that time, I was so angry and like so low because I I didn't know anyone my age navigating that stuff. And like trying to explain that to 20-year-olds, it's like, you know, people, you're sleeping four, four hours a night, you're going out four or five times a week. Like people couldn't understand. Like they, I could tell some people who loved me, they felt bad, but they didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. Um, And I think you know, over the last decade plus of my life of having navigating my health stuff, I've just really come to understand that like, I was deeply extractive of my own body and I just expected it to perform, you know, how it always had. And I put it through all kinds of hell for so much of my life. And like, it didn't matter if I was getting enough sleep. It didn't matter if I was stressed all the time. It didn't matter what I was eating. Like it better do what I wanted to do. And my chronic illnesses wiped me out. It, it was like at 20 years old, 21, 22, I was having to reset my entire life. I could not run around. I was very much faced with my own mortality, like very quickly because of the level of pain I was in. I also thought a lot about like, if this is how I'm going to feel for the rest of my life, then I don't want to be alive. Like, so I was very much faced with my own mortality and like, what does it mean to live a life where you're in so much pain and debilitated? Um, And so I really began to learn how do I have a relationship with my own body? How do I have a relationship with my pain where it goes from me being so angry at myself and my body to me being really loving and starting to tend to myself and understanding that like, this is my situation. This is my body. This is what it is right now. And so like, what do I need to do to take care of myself versus being angry and just beating myself up, which helped the situation? Not at all, but was I needed to do go through that first. Like I was pissed. 
Yeah. And so now I really navigate things as like really being very boundary, taking care of myself, like knowing what my triggers are for like flares. And I, I do so much better. Like I'm so much in less pain than I ever was years ago. Um, and it's because I'm so gentle with myself and I'm so mindful of the relationship of my, with my body, with my pain. And I take care versus, oh, I'm going to do whatever to myself, no consequences. I'm very aware that there are consequences. And the truth is, is that for all of us, we're all going to age. Like no matter how long or short you live, your body ages and changes. I just was confronted with that at like 20, but everyone starts to get there at some point. Our bodies do change. What they can do now isn't, is going to be different. Um, that's going to happen to all of us, especially if we live into old age. So it really is looking at it as like, what, not why is this happening to me, but like, okay, well, this is the reality. What can I do to help myself? And also honoring the very human feelings of sometimes being frustrated or I'm like, I am frustrated that I can't eat certain things, or I have to be really mindful of stuff. I mean, in a way, this is a taboo topic on so many levels because our culture is obsessed with youngness and being young. And it's like, fuck that culture. <laughs> yes. It's I'm like, do you, do you know how ignorant, I mean, young people are amazing, right? Like they're so right. amazing in so many ways. So I don't want to like shit on that, but also there's so much wisdom from people who have lived through many things. And we miss that just the obsession with youth is like youth is great in a lot of ways. There's so much momentum and fire and excitement and all of that. And there's so much to be gained in wisdom with life experience and our obsession with youth and wanting to be forever young strips us of having so many important experiences and like leaning into them because we're running away from them. And I had to grieve. Like I felt like overnight I went from young and like innocent in, in many ways to being faced with what it would be like for a lifetime to basically be completely debilitated. And what does my life look like? And I had to grieve that. I, I've grieved it many, many times. I had to grieve my breasts when I had a double mastectomy. Like I will always miss my breasts and like just so much grief is present and also being like, what a privilege it is to get to age. Like I, I don't ever, I never miss that. I, now I'm like, I love my birthdays. I like getting older. I'm like, I look forward to it because I'm like, I'm still here. I get to still be here. Yeah. I get to be here. It might not look like the way I thought it would look like. Yeah. It might not look like what's glamorized. Yeah. But I'm, but I'm here. I'm here. And I love that. And I, you know, I've really been moving through that this last year with a back injury and just really facing one of the questions I've really had to sit with is like, what if I'm, what if this is the rest of my life? Like, what if this is the rest of my life? I don't get to ski again. I don't get to ride my bike again. What is the deeper meaning of my life if I can't do those things? And, and am I okay with that? Yeah. And being in the question, the contemplation, the grief that comes up with that potential possibility. And just recognizing when you said, um, I expected my body to perform and these demands that we place on our bodies. And I, I hear that all the time in fertility work. Why aren't I getting pregnant? Why, like, why is my body betraying me? what is happening here and having to navigate the different aspects, like whether that betrayal is coming from bladder issues or a herniated disc or infertility, 
reorienting our expectations of our bodies and and coming back to the relationship. Because for me, and what I talk about all the time is the relational field, like we have to have a relationship with our body first and foremost. We just have to, or we're living very disconnected, very unhealthy, very outside of ourselves. And it's hard to have a relationship with your body when there's injury and pain. It just is. Yeah. And you can't bypass that. And that's like the thing I want to say is like, if someone told me at 20, when I was just being initiated into the world of chronic illness and dealing with the healthcare system, that's not like your annual physical where they're like, everything looks good. See you in a year. If someone then had said to me at the height of my pain and all just continual flares, I was having constantly said, Oh, make a gratitude list. Aren't you glad you're here? What are some things you're grateful for? I would have wanted to knock them out. I was so angry. I needed to have the process of being angry and being mad at my body and being angry at God and uh, just like pissed at everyone and angry at every person who could walk around without pain. Like I needed to have that process. If I tried to bypass that, it would have come out later. So it's like part of this is exactly what you're saying. It's hard to have a relationship with your body when you're in pain or it's not functioning the way that you want it to or how it used to. And you got to let yourself go through that process. You can't bypass that to come out on the other side. And it's taken me a decade to get to the point where if I'm in pain now, my default isn't to be mad at my body. My default is to immediately go into caretaking mode. Like I started looking at my body and my pain as like, if this were a small child, if this were my sister, someone I loved who was really unwell, how would I care for them? That's the kind of care I need to give to myself. And it took my body years to trust that that's how I was going to show up instead of further punishing, causing more pain and stress that I was actually going to care for it. And now I can feel my brain and my body having this relationship of like, I got you. I feel safe. Like they both feel safe with each other. And that just took time because I had to be mad and upset and grieve first. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for naming that. It, it is so important to move through all those emotions and seek out support if you're not able to go through that alone. No. And I think part of the reason navigate what's going on with my back is like all of my previous work that I've done, like all of my previous understandings. And, um, you know, I share this quite a bit. I, I got a virus in 2014 and was sick for a year. And like, my husband thought I was going to die. It was, it was very intense and I got really depressed. So I didn't react with anger. I reacted with depression. Yes. I was so depressed in 2014 and 2015. And, and I just had to go through that. Like I just, I had to be one of those people where I just cried in bed a lot. Yes. (laughs) Did. And I just allowed it. I just let myself and I didn't think anything was wrong with me. I just, I just let it be here like that sadness. Yep. And I think that's one thing I see a lot with people that have chronic illness and chronic pain. Like you said, doctors are dismissing them. And there's this like lack of permission to be angry or to be sad and to go through these motions of like, this is what's happening to our body. 
Yes. And I think so much of that is because of other people's discomfort and then our own discomfort with it. So then we're like, okay, well, I'm not going to allow anyone to know that this is happening, or I'm not even going to let myself feel these feelings because I'm uncomfortable. I don't want to make other people uncomfortable. And then other people aren't equipped to handle that. Like we're very uncomfortable with things like death and grief and pain and depression. And it's like, okay, if this can't be fixed easily or a bandaid put on this, what if this is what it's like forever? Everyone's like, well, I don't know what to do with that. You know, and like as someone who helped people navigate grief, one of the biggest things my clients said consistently was one of the hardest things that they dealt with in their grief was the way other people couldn't couldn't be around them. Like they could feel it was like, okay, you get like two to six months. And then you need to be like back on your feet. And it's like, no, these people, they're forever changed by their loss and other people not being able to just allow that to be and to allow them to be different was the most lonely, isolating piece of that. And we do that to ourselves too. I love how this has come back around to like the grief and the death. And you mentioned our own mortality, Mm. which is really fascinating because um, I'm really fascinated by death. (laughs) And there's research out there that says that those that actually question and sit with their own mortality live longer. Wild. (laughs) That is, I didn't know that. That's fascinating. That's a good step for me to know. I feel like I should have known that. (laughs) I didn't know that. My mind is kind of blown. It's super wild. Like, and you know, my husband and I talk about our, our mortality and we joke that like, if life gets crazy and the apocalypse that's happening gets even crazier, like what would it look like to perhaps choose to participate, to not participate in life anymore? Like, yeah, we have those conversations, which is, this is so taboo, right? Oh Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I talk about death too with people close to me and like with my husband as well. And I'm like, I don't understand how you cannot, but I also know that I like live in that world and you know, my, my partner is a doctor and sees death and deals with it. So I'm like, we're really like, un- we make other people I'm sure uncomfortable. Sometimes. So, so how casually we talk about it, but I'm like, um, if you're a person, you're going to die at some point, like we are all going to die. And also people, you know, and love will die. So like this touches all of us. To me, it's a wild thing. We saw it with the pandemic, the like, oh my, everyone kind of covers their eyes and their ears. And I'm like death and mass disabling events and healthcare. And you can just see so much discomfort with that immediately. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was a really wild thing to see happen. I was like, I mean, I knew people were uncomfortable with stuff like this, but like, this is next level. This is just on a big stage where we can see how uncomfortable people are with death and with loss and with grief, not even physical death, but like the loss of life as it was. You know, people are still like, when we get back to normal and I'm like, uh, (laughs) what is normal? You know, like, what is it? What was life before this? You know, what does that mean now? Yeah. Like that doesn't really exist anymore. It doesn't. It doesn't. And people that have navigated disability understand Mm -hmm. that. And it's people that live in abled bodies that it's harder to contend with because if you've never had something just absolutely sideline you. It's hard to conceptualize. And I found hard for people to empathize with what that means and looks like, like that is just a a reality. And I'll even say too, like my loved ones are great with me, but some of the people close to me who haven't experienced stuff, 
there's sometimes a gap where I have to fill in with knowledge and say, this is how this affects me. This is what I have to do for my body. Like I've had to explain to a number of people, this is like how I have to navigate this. I can't do X, Y, Z. There's consequences for me that there might not be for you. Mm. It's really nice that you have the maturity and the emotional intelligence to be able to navigate those conversations and educate people because, you know, in a lot of situations, that conversation just might not even ever happen between two people. Yeah. Just even to know how to navigate that conversation is, is intense. It is. And I'll say like in my younger years, I'm, I'm the person I'll just kind of, I'm very disruptive in my energy. Like I'll say the things that people are thinking, or I'll say the things and people are like, did you really just say that out loud? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Um, so I very much kind of like bulldoze into conversations and I would just tell people, oh, I have a chronic illness or like this and this. And people are like 21 years old looking at me like, what? <laughs> I, I tried to go back to grad school six weeks after my double mastectomy. Okay. Which I mean, my family tried to tell me, but I was just like tunnel vision 25. I'm going to do this to prove to myself that this surgery can't hold me back, which is like, why? Yes, of course it is. Like that is normal. You just cut off parts of your body. Like I have so much compassion for younger me, but I went around as like my fun fact and was like, I had a double mastectomy six weeks ago and people were like, mouths open and that I don't necessarily recommend. I made so many people very uncomfortable, but so I've been like talking about it for such a long time, not with a lot of maturity and wisdom, but I've gotten there as I've gotten older of like navigating these conversations, but I'm like, I'm not going to pretend that this isn't happening for me. And I look healthy. You would look at me and you'd have no idea. You'd have no idea about my chronic illnesses. You'd have no idea. I had surgeries. Like you wouldn't know. And I just feel like it's really important. It's part of like my duty to tell people like I look fine. That does not mean that I feel fine. That doesn't mean that I'm in good health in that moment at all. Mm, I love that reminder because yeah, I look fine. I look great, you know, and like, I have so much to be grateful for right now in this moment, but there's so many people leaving. I think about lupus. I think about arthritis. I think about a lot of these chronic illnesses, cancer, like most times you have no clue that from the outside, this is what's happening on the inside and that there's a chronic illness or a chronic disease going on. Yeah. And even something like cancer, I always think of like, cause I'm, I have a lot of people I love in the cancer community. And I think a lot about people who survive cancer, but they have long lasting effects from treatment, or they still have to undergo a certain level of treatment. And people are like, you survived. Yeah. You're a lot. And it's like their bodies are forever changed forever. And people don't think about that. Like there's a quality of life conversation that's often missing when it comes to our bodies and our health. And I think that that's just important. And that, that makes people very uncomfortable to have that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. The whole quality of life conversation. I was confronted with that working in NICUs and ICUs and it's such a young age. I mean, and I was old for my, compared to my classmates, I was one of the older ones and I graduated at 27 and was thrown into a NICU at 27, 28. And just the stuff I saw. And that was one of my first, what am I doing moments with my life almost was, was seeing this is how our society works and no judgment of like saving lives. Yep. And I would often be like, at what cost? And for who? Yeah. 
And I really, really, I mean, I still like really sit in contemplation with that topic, just seeing all the things I have seen. And for me personally, naming, I wouldn't want to live in some of the certain situations or conditions that I've seen when people were quote unquote saved. Yeah, totally understand that. I think that brings us back to the question of like, what does our own mortality in life mean to us? Mm-hmm. Just and- no, so casual, not a big question at all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Am I a weirdo that I think about these things? No, I think about them too. If we are, then we're two weirdos, a match made in heaven. I'm like, if anyone was coming in for like a light and airy episode, they've, they're being hit with their own mortality and existential <laughs> questions right now. <laughs> All right, listeners. So in this moment, (laughs) all we're asking you to do is to question your own quality of life and mortality. Yeah, it's simple. Face your own death. It's going to happen. It is. Yeah. And I just know for me, like so much of my life is around relationship. Yeah. It's around movement. Yeah. And I think of that book, the diving bell and the butterfly. Oh, I've heard of it. Oh my God. You have to read that. It's like something that everybody's read and I've heard it a million times and I've just never read it myself. Yeah. This person was paralyzed except for they could only blink their eyes and mm. the speech wow. therapist figured it out and figured out a system for this person to like fully communicate and write a book. which is amazing and so beautiful. And I'm like, if I was that person, I would be massively depressed. Yes. Wow. I wouldn't write a book. (laughs) I don't think I would write a book either. I think I'd spend at least 10 years pissed and I would just be communicating with my eyes how angry I was repeatedly. (laughs) Like that would be it. Me too. There's, I mean, in this conversation, like, of course, there's many different points of view, many different perspectives. I am open to all of them. Yeah. I wouldn't write a book. No, I wouldn't either. And you know what I love that you said was just like, when we think about mortality, I think one of the biggest, I'm at this point in, with my health where I'm like one of the biggest gifts I've gotten with reckoning with my health from like relatively young ages compared to my peers is just a different idea and ability to prioritize what's important to me. Like I, I very much can kind of zoom out and go, okay, this shit doesn't matter. I'm irritated about this, but like, this doesn't matter. And I'm very clear on like, this is what matters to me. This is what I need to prioritize. I'm human. So I get caught up in everything. I I watch TV. I like go to the movie. I do. So I'm not saying like every moment of the life, my life, I'm like breathing out under a tree and I'm like, thank, I'm so glad to be here. Like I'm human too. But I also am very clear that like what makes my life work worth living are my relationships. And that's where I want my time and my effort to go. And that's where I want, even when I work, like with our mentor, Rachel Maddox, my work with her was so much centered on relational things because I was like, this is the stuff that really makes life worth living. I've worked with hundreds, hundreds of people and whether they came to me for grief or sexual trauma or chronic illness, you know, what we spend so much of our time talking about is relationships because we need each other. And that's what makes our lives rich. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So well said. I'm listening to uh Gabor Mate's book, the myth of normal right now which is such a good book. If you haven't listened to that or read it, 
it's definitely worth a read. And actually the whole first part of his book, he's going into chronic illness and the relationship to wow. personality and stress and, and trauma and <laughs> just has my mind kind of spinning. But I just got to the chapter where he talks about how attachment, which is relationship. Yes. Attachment, attachment styles that is because of relationship. Yep. Is in direct correlation with authenticity. Wow. And fig and navigating that. And so it's really coming to these relational terms with ourselves. If that relationship is with ourselves, like, am I at peace with myself? Am I at peace with my body? And if we are, then we can show up authentically, 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 authentically. Thank you. I do that with words too, all the time. (laughs) My husband teases me because I'll just like make up words. And then I liked it. It sounded good. (laughs) Just keep going. (laughs) But if we have that relationship, then we can be authentic. Yeah. If we have that relationship with our partner, we can be authentic yep. if we have that relationship with our friends. But if there is a threat to that attachment or a threat to that relationship, we can't maintain that authenticity and be ourselves. No, it's very difficult. Really, really difficult. And so what what really matters to me in this life is what are, what are the qualities of my relationships? Yeah. And the more that I'm in a beautiful relationship with those relationships, the more authentic I can, I can be. Yeah. Um, And that was so much of my work with Rachel personally was like, how do I get my business where I, I want it? How can I get that relationship more steady and in a, in a better place so that I'm in authentic in that place of my life? Cause it felt mismatched for a bit or parts of it. That makes so much sense. And that, that goes back to like everything being relational, like all of it being relational work. Yeah, it yeah. really is. Mm-hmm. Mm. I feel like we've gone all over. I'm like, I know <laughs> <laughs> we really have, we've covered a wide range here. I know. I like, I wrote down some notes on like mortality, death, grief, pain, <laughs> <laughs> relationships, chronic illness. Yep. Breast cancer. Yeah. Covered it. <laughs> you know, we had kind of talked about diving into sexual trauma. I don't know mm-hmm. if you want to, we can, we don't have to. It's like, that's the one thing we haven't talked about. I know. Yeah, I'm, I'm open to any of it. I, I feel like sexual trauma can kind of go in the same field of chronic illness. Mm-hmm in the sense that people can be victims or experience sexual trauma, sexual abuse. Yeah. And we would have no idea. Yes. And it's a very unfortunately common thing. I don't know this, the current statistics. Do you? No, I don't know them off the top of my head either, but it is very, very high where you're way more likely to know people who have experienced sexual trauma than to not that the majority of people, you know, have experienced it or will at some point in their lives. Hmm. What's fascinating about that to me is that it, then to me, it shows how much it's not talked about. Oh, a hundred percent. And I think 
like linking it to almost chronic illness is brilliant and very on par and also linking it to like relational injuries, right? Because you experience it. If you experience sexual trauma at the hands of another person, it's going to affect how you show up in relationships. It's going to affect your sense of safety in your own body and in relation to the world and other people. All of these things go together so intensely. And I even think back to my chronic illness diagnosis affected my sex life intensively. I'm also a survivor of sexual trauma. And so it was almost like my chronic illness being centered on that part of my body, like my pelvis, my vulva, my vagina, my bladder, that whole area. It brought up shame. I thought I was being punished for being a more sexually free person in my teenage years. I thought, oh, this is what I get. I could not have sex for a number of years without extreme amounts of pain. Um, I actually was going to a pelvic floor physical therapist at like 24, 25, 26. And I didn't know anyone else. I thought, oh, this is where you go if you had, a, if you have ch- a child, right? I didn't know people like me could go because I couldn't have penetrative sex. I couldn't do that without having pain and flares. And all of a sudden, those were the years I started reckoning with sexual traumas I had experienced. I started going to therapy specifically to work on that because I was like, everything was impacting everything. And I, I didn't know how to navigate it. Hmm. You know, I think that's so prevalent, this, um, this level of shame that exists with sexual trauma and how you said it of like, this is what I get. Like I deserve this for being sexually active or for what's happened to me in the past. And now I'm going to pay for it now. Yes. Yes. And losing this source of immense pleasure and a part of my life that I took a lot of joy in. Um, and I was like, this is really important to me. And all of a sudden it felt like it was off the table. I felt broken. I felt like my vagina was broken. And then I cut off my breasts and I was like, what is happening to my body? I'm like losing these, like I'm losing pieces of myself is what it felt like. And I'm like, what if this is it. And this is my punishment for enjoying sex so much or, you know, punishment as part of like the things that happened to me that were not my fault at all. But all of those things came out, like reared their ugly heads. And I I went to therapy for years, specifically working through those things because I was like, oh, I need help. Mm-hmm. And at that time too, I had to read the body keeps the score for one of my trauma classes in grad school. And I started understanding, not that like, necessarily the trauma I experienced sexually from young at a young age caused my chronic illness in that area of my body, but just the link of the pain in that area and how tense and guarded I was. It just, it just like things started coming together and I started coming into understanding of my body, which helped me heal emotionally, not just physically, but emotionally. Um, and I'm just really grateful I had that support because I was terrified of like what my life was going to look like and terrified of like being that I was being punished. Mm -hmm. It makes me wonder, did you grow up Christian? No, I grew up Jewish, but I grew up Jewish in the South. So, you know, uh, purity culture rampant, right? Like it's there, even if that's not like what I experienced in, you know, religious part of my life, I was still very much, much exposed to it. I knew people with purity rings. I knew people like kind of taking that stance. Um, 
it was everywhere. I even remember a friend in college saying to me, oh, I could never do what you do because I was having casual sex at the time. Like, I'm just not a kind of person who could do that. And I just stopped and said, what kind of person does that? What do you mean mm-hmm. by that? Mm-hmm. And I recognize like, that's not, that's a product. That's somebody else talking, right? Like that's what we're taught. Yeah. It's yeah. all taught. I have not experienced sexual trauma. I am one of like this, I'm this odd man out statistic. I feel so happy for you. Like that just makes me so like, I'm, it makes me just feel like I'm so glad that you have it seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that acknowledgement. Actually. I mean, some of it might be that how I grew up and where I grew up. And I remember I grew up LDS Mormon. Mm -hmm. I stopped going to church at a very young age and didn't Mm -hmm. really follow the the religion anymore. And I started sleeping with my then boyfriend and had painful sex. Like it hurt and it burned. And I was 17, 18. And I would go to the doctor and be like, what is going on? Well, everything's fine. You're fine. Nothing's here. And so then this old, old school religious indoctrination came into my mindset that was like, well, it must hurt because I'm having premarital sex and I'm bad. And I sat and shamed myself, thought I was the worst person in the world. And I couldn't talk to anyone about it because I didn't want to tell anyone that I was (laughs) engaging in sex because I wasn't supposed to be. Yep. During that time in my life, I just remember being like so isolated, so alone, dismissed by doctors, having no solution. Like there really, it wasn't like I could tell my parents, like, I need to go to therapy because I have this issue that essentially stemmed from the religion that you put me in. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. That would have been a conversation. (laughs) So I just remember actually navigating with this and dealing with this for years for years. And in fact, I ended up marrying that person. Um, and it was after we got married, I could finally say something. Wow. I could finally like bring it to the awareness and start to ask questions because as a married woman, it was okay. It was okay. Wow. So, so much time suffering and in pain. Yeah. I mean, I got married really young. We got married when I was 19. So it was probably like a year and a half or two years of just, just shame, just shaming myself and just being like, well, this, this must be normal. This must be what sex feels like, Mm. you know, Mm. like it's not supposed to feel good for the woman, you know, heaven forbid, enjoy it. Yes. All of that indoctrination came in and it spent, I took years working through that and probably fully still didn't work through it until I was in my thirties doing my womb mentorship and womb work. Yep. Coming to terms that, yeah, women get to enjoy sex. Women get to like it. It gets to feel pleasurable. Yes. There's nothing dirty or wrong with us. No. And it's like, I love that you shared how you grew up and your experience. And it's like, I grew up in this family where we did talk about sex. I felt very comfortable talking to my mom and asking questions. And she was really great and sharing information. I used to, for better or worse, devour Cosmo magazine, like for the information. Like I wanted to know things. I love to read. I wanted to know information. And 
still, even with that, I had internalized things without even realizing them. And I remember when I went to my pelvic floor PT the first time, she pulled down this diagram of the vulva and vagina and started pointing and showing me and helping me understand. And I remember being simultaneously relieved to be given this information and incredibly angry that I was like, at that point, was I 25, 26? I was pissed. I was like, you got to be kidding me. Like, why did nobody tell me? This would have been so helpful to know, to understand my body. I remember when I was having so much pain with sex, one of my doctors was like, Oh, you know, you just need to drink a glass of wine to relax. And at that point I was like, I am alcohol sober. Not only am I sober. Okay. Number one, number two, that's one of my trigger food and drinks. If I do that, I flare. Okay. Why would that be the solution? And then I had another doctor that was like, well, I can inject Botox in in the tissues in your vagina. That was the go-to before pelvic floor PT. These are doctors and specialists. So I had to do so much of my own research. Mm. And it was exhausting. So now I talk about it to people all the time. I'm like, any amount of pain, you need to go talk to somebody. Like, you do not have to accept that as like, that's how it has to be. It doesn't actually. Please talk to someone. Like, don't sit with that. Yeah. Yeah. And to, to bring it back to sexual trauma, like, don't sit with that. You cannot navigate that alone and nothing is wrong with you. This isn't because you've done something bad. No, This isn't something that you quote unquote have deserved. Like this is a unfortunate normal part of society that it's time to seek out help and get support. And you know, it's like you said, when you were talking about chronic illness, you don't have to be like, oh, everything's fine. And it's like, no, you get to be pissed. You get to be depressed. You get to be in this space of whatever emotions are there around the sexual trauma, whatever yes. the situation is, it's okay. And I'll fully allowed. Yeah. And we heal in community. It's like, there's a certain level of healing you can do by yourself. And then there's other amounts of it and depth that we need in connection, in community. We need to be witnessed in our feelings and our stories and what is happening to us. And whether that's through a professional, a therapist, a coach, whether that's through communal support as in people around you that you love and trust, family, friends, whoever, having spaces where we can be seen in whatever we're navigating and not just the pretty stuff and the celebrations, but the really hard parts of life. Yeah. And I feel like there's a movement now, not when I was growing up, I'm in my early forties. You didn't talk about the hard stuff. That wasn't a thing to be seen and celebrated in and Mm -hmm. supported in. And, um, I was, I was sending my mom an email and (laughs) about this podcast and, you know, I said, yeah, it must be really weird to have your daughter having a podcast. that's like airing family laundry. It's yep. like, I am putting out our dirty laundry on the street and saying, Hey, everyone, look at, look at this. Yeah. Um, and the reason why I'm doing that is so that others don't feel so all alone. And this is normalized. I love that. And I'm that person in my family too, much to the displeasure of some of my extended relatives who are just absolutely appalled by me and just like, can't understand it. And my parents are so supportive, but there's times that they're like, sometimes we can't believe the things that you say out loud. And I've had people my own age that are like, 
I can't believe you just said that. Like, I mean, same. And like, I feel the same, but like, I don't think I could ever say that. And I'm like, you know what, what has helped me is other people who have said the things out loud. So I'm willing to say it and and like, you know, let the chips fall where they may and people can think what they want, but at least I'm free. I've been able to express and maybe at least one or two other people heard it and was like, okay, I'm relieved. I feel the same way. Let me like go talk to somebody about this. If I ignite anything from my podcast, it's like that people are like, okay, I'm not crazy. I can totally go talk to someone about this. I probably should seek out some support. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) And I'm normal. Like this is all normal. All normal. It really is. It's just the stuff that people don't talk about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I just... Yeah, I do. I think I, I shared this too about you in your stories and your Instagram. <laughs> I'll tell you, I showed my husband your Instagram story from Halloween. Wait, what was happening on Halloween? You were like, you were like sharing that you uh, don't know how to not do Halloween unless it's slutty costumes, <laughs> that you're working towards the point of, of, of adulting. You didn't call it adulting, but yeah, I was like, I don't want to terrify my neighbors with small children and being like the sluttiest costume handing out candy. <laughs> yeah. And you were like, wanted a giant skeleton. And you were like, Chris doesn't want it, but I'm going to win. Yeah. Got to win the war. <laughs> so I showed him these couple of stories and he was like, I w- who is this person? I want to hang out with her in real life. <laughs> <laughs> I will say like, I am a good time because like, I want to just talk. I want to, I I can't, I like small talk. I think it pleasantries are lovely. And some people like are just like being like, hi, how are you? But I also, oh my God, I'm fascinated by people. I want to know people as who they are. I'm like, I don't care what you do for a living, your money, the, any of those things. But like, I, what was it like the first time you fell in love or mm-hmm. like, you know, I want to like know about these things and know people people always been has helped me come closer to myself was watching other people be like, this is my truth. And I was like, Oh, I could do that too. I could share that too. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And it just goes back to this, like the more we can share, the more we can normalize conversation, the more we can just like, you know, whatever pleasantries out the window, go into (laughs) these deeper conversations. Yeah. Show up authentic, authentic, I authentically. Authentically, it's just <laughs> tripping you up today. I've heard you say it before. It's just today. <laughs> you just can't have it today. That's okay. It might be that like today we're recording on eleven eleven, and maybe there's a portal happening, <laughs> a portal of authenticity. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to live on a planet. Like I want to live in a universe where everything gets to be normalized and everything yeah. gets to be okay. Regardless, mortality, death, chronic illness, sexual trauma, put it out, area yes. laundry. Me too. And what a relief it is. What a relief. And I always think back to like when I run and facilitate support groups, my favorite part of them is like someone says something and you can see other people being like, oh, thank God. Like, thank God someone said that. I feel the same. Like you can feel when the ice kind of melts of like the, how do I posture and present myself so that I'm allowed to be here? And the belonging stems from sharing our truth and just being met and and people, even if they haven't experienced the same thing, being like, I understand what that person's saying. And I, I want to know more and I, I care and I, I'm here to listen and witness you. That's like my favorite. Mm. 
Me too. It's like, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously we're on the line of work that we're in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for that reason. Right line of work. Yeah, we are. We really are. <laughs> yeah. But that like palpable, it's palpable when that it moment is. happens. It really, really is. I feel like we've just like did a merry-go-round of like really amazing things. Yeah. This was so much fun. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I'm like, how can we do this more often? Let's do this again. I would love to. <laughs> anything, I'm going to just ask a few closing questions. One, just being anything else you want to share, anything else, any knowledge, any wisdom you'd like to impart upon us? Yeah. I mean, along the lines of like what it could look like to share your truth, I want people to know that it gets to look different for anybody and everybody. And you get to you get to share and also you're entitled to privacy. Like I will talk about my vulva on social media, no joke. But then I also am allowed to have privacy around other things that people are like, why are you talking about that? It's like, cause I want it to be private. And so you, you get to honor and go at your pace. And sometimes like telling the truth first just needs to happen to ourselves. Like if I can just say to myself, oh, actually how I'm feeling about this, what I actually think, what's true for me. If I can just say that to myself, if you can say it to yourself, if you can say it to your pet, if you can say it to the tree that you love in your yard, like that gets to be where you start. And maybe that's where you stop. And that matters. And that's like the biggest thing I would tell people is like, that matters. Mm, I love that. I get that question a lot from people that know me and know that I started out as this like really quiet body worker. And now they're watching me on social media and they're like, how are you, how are you doing what you're doing? I'm like, I just am like, I just decided this is what's happening. And, and I love that advice for them. It's just like, you have to tell the truth to yourself first and be comfortable here first. And then you get to decide what people are seeing and what people aren't seeing. Yes. Yeah. And I think even just doing that because it's the truth is true no matter what, like it's just is it's there. And sometimes just having a place to express even just with yourself versus what I saw so much was like women that suppressed it. They hit their forties and then they would show up in my office like, "Uh Oh, (laughs) I'm about to dismantle my entire life because I've suppressed my truth for the last like two decades plus. And I'm like, yeah. So it's there. It's going to come out in some form or fashion. So the more that you can just honor your own truth within yourself, and it can feel so terrifying because the truth might mean that change happens probably in some way, some facet. And that's so scary. So also being really tender that it makes sense if we want to like hide from ourselves because truth means change potentially. Mm. And you said something to me actually on one of the common calls along these lines that was so profound for me we can go to the edges. We can put ourselves out there and it can be a little scary. And we, and we can do these things that kind of just push this edge. And then we can actually find a safe place to go back and retreat into and land into like this contraction and this safe place to be. And so when we're pushing ourselves to our edge and we're going into this expansion and, and growth, whatever that is, that doesn't have to be consistent or 100%. It's like there needs to be a place to then contract into, to, to go back into that nervous system regulation. Yes. Yes. Sharing your truth doesn't mean that you just strip down naked and stand on the stage for all the world to see. And then you just have to stay there. 
mm-hmm. forevermore. Like it gets to be dosed out little pieces of it and you get privacy and you get to like go back in your hidey hole and hide out. I'm looking at the winter time that's coming and going like, I'm really craving retreat. I express publicly often and I'm needing space to kind of go inside. And and what is that going to look like and honoring that for myself and not pushing through? Great last part of parting knowledge. How can people work with you? Yeah, well, you can find me on Instagram is really where you can find me. I support people one-on-one and, you know, I take on a handful of clients. And so I typically have space for one to two more people at any given moment um, based on who I'm working with and how long we're working together. So always just reach out to me. I always have the application for one-on-one work. I'm also now running small groups that running my own coven. And um, by the time this airs, we'll already be in one, but I have plans to open another one as well. So that's how I can support you one-on-one or small group. Yay. Amazing. And seriously, I'll link her Instagram below. She's really fun to follow on Instagram in her (laughs) stories and just how she's showing up and what she's doing. And also your posts, like they're always very knowledgeable. And every time they show up in my feed, I'm, I'm always like, Oh yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Mm -hmm." (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. I adore you. Yeah. It's been really fun. So definitely check her out, reach out to her. If you have questions, um, if people do want to work with you one-on-one is the best way through Instagram or do you have a website? I don't, you know, what's wild is even for my Virgo son, I don't have a website, which is like really mind blowing that I have a successful business with no, my goal in 2023 is to literally have even the bare bones website. But right now, like the applications through a link on Instagram, you can message me on Instagram. Like that's really where I live. So working on that website piece. I mean, honestly, Alyssa, like keep it simple because yeah. I have so many different avenues and I, I met with someone and she was like, girl, you just got to get like one or two places and that's it. So yeah, yeah. good job. Thanks. <laughs> Kept it more simple than I ever even intended to. I'm like, how did this happen? But here we are. And so, you know, everything works. Mm, amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. We'll definitely, I'm sure, want to have you on again. Yes, we'd love to. Thank you for having me. All right. I honestly don't have anything to add other than thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to check Alyssa out on Instagram. And I will be here in two weeks where we're talking to Melissa Height. And this is going to be a little bit of a different episode because I did a listener poll and we answered all of your sensuality and sexuality questions Q&A style. So be sure to tune into that in two weeks and I will see you then. 